0: Good morning, church family and friends. Great to see you today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for making worship a priority this weekend. I want to give a special welcome to anyone who might be a guest with us today, and I want to give a very special welcome to all you folks over at Impact Bethany who are joining us this weekend and will be joining us for the next three weeks for this special message series. Um, you have known for some time that we were going to do this, that we were going to share a four-week message series called Truth Over Trend, and uh, I want to just kind of give you an idea of what that's going to look like for these first three weekends. Beginning today, I'm going to talk about three specific issues that are having a huge impact on our world and our culture. And then after those three weeks are finished, I'm going to I'm going to finalize the series with a message that's all about having the courage to stand up and speak for your faith, which is something that's becoming more and more of a challenge in our modern world. But we're going to start this weekend with a message on gender identity. And as we begin, I will just be honest with you and tell you that I feel more burdened standing in the pulpit today than I have in all of my 43 years of being a pastor. I don't feel anxious. I don't feel afraid. I don't feel unsure. I just feel Burdened. I've never been naive about the brokenness of the world, but the reality of gender confusion, the reality of gender conflict, the reality of gender activism in our culture today is terribly, terribly alarming to me, and it should be to you as well. It's not that the issue of transgender is something new. All the way back in 2014, Time magazine called Transgender the next civil rights movement. I don't really believe that's an accurate statement, but it just goes to show you that the question of the issue has been around for some time. And while this is an issue that's challenging at least on some level for everyone, it's especially challenging, I believe, today for Christians who live with a biblical worldview, word, worldview rather because so much of the culture around us already thinks that we're backward thinking when it comes to the moral issues of our day. And so our challenge is to have a genuinely biblical perspective on gender identity and address every aspect of the issue with the same kind of grace and truth that jesus embodied when he came into the world that's got to be our goal and so we've got so much to talk about today i'll tell you in advance we're going to go longer than 35 minutes (laughs) let's dive in if you're able today i want to invite you to stand with me we always make the public reading of scripture a significant part of our service And we're going to do it by standing together and reading one single verse of Scripture together today. And then I'm going to ask you just to remain standing for a time of prayer. But let me hear your voices as we read these words together from John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we just ask that you would speak to us today that you would clear our hearts and minds, that you would give us open and honest hearts and open and honest responses to the truth of your word. We love you, and we thank you for your clarity on the issues of life and living in this world you created. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I'm deeply... Troubled by the many things I have read and have seen and discovered related to transgender activism today, something that we'll talk about in the final message of this series when I talk about having the courage to speak up for biblical truth. But I want to tell you right from the beginning that the main focus of this particular message is going to be the confusion, the conflict, and the challenge of gender identity for our children and our families, because this is a very real concern right here where we live. And I want to pause in the very beginning and give a couple of definitions, because one of the difficulties about understanding all of these social issues related to sex and identity is understanding the terms. And so let's just identify or define two specific terms that will help us today. The first one is transgender, and the second one is the term non-binary. If you go to the dictionary, the word transgender refers to someone whose gender identity does not correspond to that person's sex assigned at birth. That's word for word from the dictionary. But in Preston Sprinkle's book, (coughs) Transgender, (coughs) excuse me, Embodied, that I'll talk about, a little, more, a little bit more in a few minutes. He writes this about transgender. According to Christian psychologist Mark Yarhouse, transgender is an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might express and or present and live out their gender identities different from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. That's a wordy definition. Let me read it one more time. I'm sure it's on the screen behind me. According to psychologist Mark Yarhouse, transgender is an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express or live out their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. The term non-binary refers to a wide range of gender identities that are not exclusively male or female or masculine or feminine. The word binary means consisting of or involving two, And so when it comes to gender binary, that's a reference to two genders, male and female. So someone who says they are non-binary is someone who does not exclusively identify with male or female. Now you might not have in your family or in your circle of friendships a child who deals with this issue of transgender or non-binary on a personal level, but here's what every single parent needs to understand, and I want you to listen to me really closely. The issue of transgender will continue to become a peer issue for your children. Let me say that again. The issue of transgender and non-binary will continue to become a peer issue For your children. What do I mean by that? Well, simply stated, your children are going to have to face the question of how they look at and how they interact with other children who identify as transgender or non-binary. That means they'll have questions like this. If I don't acknowledge, embrace, and even celebrate other kids who say they are transgender or non-binary, in some cases, maybe kids that I have known for years, does that mean I'm transphobic? Or does that mean I'm going to be labeled as someone who hates people who are different? They may even come to a place in their life based on what's happening around them where they begin to wonder whether or not they need to be gender fluid, another term associated with gender identity that means exactly what it sounds like it means. And don't think your children are not aware of these things or aware of these questions because they are bombarded with them every single day online, especially if you're not a parent that monitors the online viewing of your children, social media, television, movies, and on and on and on and on. And on top of all of these things, these are issues. These things will be taught in our schools. So I'm gonna use my time to talk about gender identity from a biblical perspective. But before I do that, I've never done this before, I wanna give you four things that might be viewed kind of as ground rules for this message. Number one, I don't have time to address everything related to gender identity. So I'm gonna put the name of a book up on the screen that I referenced a moment ago. It's a book called Embodied, written by a man named Preston Sprinkle. And I would encourage you to buy this book, especially if you have children at home. This book is both scientifically sound and biblically grounded. And on top of that, it's written from a gracious standpoint. I will tell you in advance, it's not the easiest book to read. But it is one that can be very helpful to you in your challenge of stewarding the lives of your children. Here's number two. If you disagree with me, you don't get to disown me because I won't disown you. I won't. I'm going to talk about gender identity from a biblical perspective because I view all of life, every single part of it, from a biblical perspective. That is a huge part of my Christian commitment. I do not have a progressive view of the Bible. I do not have a postmodern faith. I believe deeply in Jesus' command to love one another in John 15 and verse seven, but I also believe, listen to me close, that you can love someone without affirming everything in their life. But if you don't share that commitment, and if you don't share that commitment, you're probably gonna... Disagree with me on some of the things that we talk about. And we live in a culture today that promotes an attitude that says if you disagree with someone, you're done with someone. I have experienced that so often over the last 43 years of my life as a pastor in the local church. I have lost what I consider to be incredibly strong and close friendships because of disagreements about biblical issues had some pretty bad experiences with staff who have worked for me in the past because of differences about biblical issues. But at the end of the day, living with the attitude that says, if I don't agree with someone, I'm done with them is not a healthy or biblical way to live, period. Number three, I'm gonna say something that might sound a little strange to you this morning. If I say something that you really, really agree with Please don't clap. Sometimes that happens in church. Not trying to stifle your freedom to affirm what you believe is true. I just don't want to take any chance of alienating anyone because there just might be someone here today, maybe even sitting close to you, who feels broken and who feels hopeless when it comes to gender identity. And they feel like there's nobody that they can talk to about their struggle, which means they think there's nobody here who will love them. And listen, folks, that can simply not be true about this church or any church. And finally, number four, I'm going to do my absolute best to speak the truth in love. Look at these words on the screen from Ephesians 4.15. They were written by the Apostle Paul. He said, instead... Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Now, Paul wrote those words to the church in Ephesus in the context of what the church needs to look like as they live under the leadership of Jesus, who the Bible says is the head of the church. And so simply stated, that means if you and I are gonna look like Jesus as we go through our lives in this world, we need to speak the truth in love because that's what Jesus did. That's what mature followers of Jesus do. They speak the truth in love. Immature followers of Jesus do one but not the other. They speak the truth with no love or they love people without giving them any truth. And that simply can't be the way that we operate. So let's talk about truth. How do we determine truth in this ever-changing world today? Well, historically, you would begin with the facts and then let your feelings be influenced by the facts. But over the last several years, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, there's been a culture shift where many people today start with their feelings and then let their feelings determine the facts. In other words, we start with how we feel, we start with our personal preferences, we start with what we would like to be true, And then we oftentimes, especially for believers sometimes who are not strong in their faith, we follow this progression. The first thing we do is we find someone who agrees with us and that's not difficult to do in the world today. Whether you do it through groupthink or you do it through social media or social media algorithms or you do it through your peer group or you do it through the news outlet you watch, you can always find someone who agrees with what you think, which is really what you feel. Second, and this is so disturbing, Again, we're talking about oftentimes Christians who don't have a mature faith. We go to the Bible to try to find a verse that supports our belief, but almost 100% of the time, that verse is taken out of context. It's not accurately interpreted. I'll give you an example of that in just a minute. So we think we can create a loophole by finding a verse of scripture that we think supports our belief. that's not based on fact, but based on feeling. And then the third thing we'll do sometimes, again, talking about Christians who don't have a mature faith, is we'll say something like this. Well, the Jesus I love or the Jesus I follow would or wouldn't, and then you fill in the blank with whatever it is that you believe and you're trying to promote. But friends, I hope that we all understand that is not a sound or mature way to determine truth. It's just not. I saw a social media post this past week where a pastor stood up in front of his church and he made this statement. He said, Jesus was trans. In other words, Jesus was transgender. And I thought, well, that's a stretch. And this was the Bible verse that he used to support that statement. It's Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37 where Jesus says these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Now, he didn't quote the entire verse. He just quoted the part that said that Jesus was like a hen who who longed to gather chicks under uh, her chicks under her wings. And he used that in an effort to promote the Statement that Jesus was transgender now. I'll just tell you friends I can't imagine a more false and bizarre interpretation of a verse of scripture that is in the Bible to show us the compassionate loving Gracious longing heart of Jesus for all men everywhere to be saved So Let's just consider three questions together today. I do not have a clever outline. It's just question number one, question number two, and question number three. And if you're someone who likes to take notes, here's question number one. What makes a biological male or female? I know that sounds obvious, but bear with me because more and more, we are hearing, and in many cases, our kids are being taught that gender is a social construct and that children should be able to decide for themselves whether they are male or female. But in the scientific community, among biologists, there is a consensus on this question. And the consensus is centered on three primary characteristics that decides whether someone is male or female. Number one, reproduction. Men and women have different ways of reproducing. Men and women have different roles in the act of reproduction. Number two, external anatomy. Men and women have different body parts. They have different external anatomy. And number three, the presence or absence of a Y chromosome. Male have XY chromosomes while females have XX chromosomes. Now, having said that, let's just acknowledge right from the beginning that there are people who are born into the world with non-conforming chromosomal patterns and sexual anatomy that doesn't fall under the typical definition of male and female, and the term used to describe those people is the term intersex, but I want you to listen to me close. Again, I'll reference what I said earlier. I can't cover everything related to gender identity, and so I would refer you to that book Embodied Again by Preston Sprinkle, which has an entire chapter dedicated and devoted to people who were born intersex. Here's what I will tell you. Somewhere between 0.022% to 1.7% of people are born intersex. And I would really refer you to the book Embodied because it can help you understand those percentages and especially help you understand that that 1.7% possibility of people born intersex is a little bit suspect when you put it under the microscope of research. But let me just cut to the chase. Here's the question that comes from this. Does the reality of intersex mean that the traditional understanding of gender as binary, male and female, is outdated and should be discarded in favor of what some would call a more enlightened view that gender is fluid and unlimited? And here's my answer to that question, no. One of the clear truths of the Bible is that we live in a sinful and a fallen and a broken world. We'll talk more about that later. But also that we all, all of us, every last one of us, everyone listening to my voice right now, we all experience the reality of that brokenness in some way in our lives. We experience it in spiritual ways, we experience it in emotional ways, we experience it in mental ways, and we experience it in physical ways. But we also understand and believe that God is good and that he shows his goodness to us through his grace that he provides us in our time of weakness, whatever the source of that weakness. People who are born intersex have a conjecture genital condition in which their sexual anatomy and or reproductive organs don't appear to correspond to typical definitions of male or female. In that sense, it is a genetic anomaly, not another sex or gender. And one of the interesting things that Preston Sprinkle writes in his book Embodied is that in 99% of cases of intersex people, there is little to no ambiguity about the biological sex of the person. There was a family in my very first church in Houston. Had three kids, two girls and a boy. And uh, the oldest daughter, I, I did the wedding for all three of them when they got older. And the oldest daughter has four kids, three boys and a little girl. And her little girl was born intersex. And in the crazy way the world works, not that long ago, well probably longer than I can remember, they contacted me and said they were bringing her to Indianapolis to Methodist Hospital for a procedure that she needed that was related to this condition. Sandy and I uh, called them and said, well, let us bring dinner down to you one night, and we went and we spent some time with them, and that, there's no question that little girl is a little girl. Does it just stink that she was born with this condition? It absolutely does, but it doesn't change anything about who she is, not fundamentally created by God. And so I go back to what I previously said Among scientists, there is a consensus on what makes someone male or female, and the consensus is centered on three things. Reproduction, men and women have different ways of reproducing and different roles in reproduction. External anatomy, men and women have different body parts, different external anatomy, and the presence or absence of a Y chromosome. And so the question comes up, well, what if a person has incongruence? Or in other words, what if there's something something that just doesn't line up in someone's understanding of their biological self and their internal sense of self which one of those three things determines who they are if a person is born male but from a very young age they have an inner sense that they should be female which one trumps the other well before i answer the question let me just give you two things to consider write this down somewhere the first one is something called gender dysphoria can see it on the screen. This is a very real scientific condition that some people have. It can start at an early age or it can be something that a person deals with later in their life. And the experience of gender dysphoria can range from mild to severe. And when I say severe, I read about one person again in the book Embodied that's described their gender dysphoria like this. They said it was like an electrical current through my body that caused my joints to ache, my stomach to turn, my hands to shake. Lying in bed at night, it almost felt like the electric circuits in my body didn't quite match up, like cramming two wrong puzzle pieces together. And so, gender dysphoria is a very real thing for people. I personally know someone, a man, who was a pastor and a church leader, very prominent in our movement of churches, who for years, after a long time, revealed that for years he'd struggled with gender dysphoria and actually, at a crazy age, transitioned from a man to a woman. It was a shocking thing. But it is a very real condition. And here's the thing about people who have gender dysphoria. They have a hard time hearing someone say, your feelings don't determine who you are. But here's the percentage of our population that deals with gender dysphoria. It is .0052.014%. And some people who have gender dysphoria, like the man that I know, they transition. Some people who have gender dysphoria, they don't. They remain who they are and they find a way to deal with the reality of that sickness. The percentage of people that deal with this issue, by the way, comes from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and I'm not saying that to be unkind or offensive. I just want to be honest with you about where I came up with that percentage. Some people with gender dysphoria, again, transition to the sex their mind tells them they are, and some people don't, but that is a very real Condition that some people suffer with. That's the first term gender dysphoria. Here's the second term we need to think about for a moment gender stereotypes the second consideration that comes when someone feels like there's a conflict between their biological self and their internal self. And so if we were to think about it from a practical standpoint, it would be something like this. What if my son or daughter seems to be into things that aren't normally associated with their biological sex? Does that mean they are transgender or non-binary? Here's my answer. No. Because there is a difference between gender stereotypes and gender. Gender stereotypes are culturally constructed, while gender is biologically identified. There is a difference between a gender stereotype and a gender absolute. I was listening to a sermon on this subject a while back, and the pastor said, this was surprising to me, he said, in 1918, the Ladies' Home Journal wrote, Pink being a more decided and strong color is more suitable for boys while blue is more delicate and dainty, or while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for a girl. A lot has changed in our culture since 1918. And I don't know how anyone with even a modicum of cultural awareness doesn't understand that as culture changes, it impacts pretty much every aspect of life and living, every aspect of your life and living, and every aspect of mine, every aspect of our children's, every aspect of everyone that we know. The world is so much bigger and so much closer and so much more real for our children today than ever before. Which, by the way, on a very personal note, I don't think is a good thing. And I think that's something parents need to be very careful in monitoring. I didn't fly on an airplane until I was 14 or 15. I have three grandchildren that are veteran flyers. It used to be you had to wait until you were older to experience certain things or get certain rewards, but that's not the case anymore with any of our children. Just look at the different competitive activities our children participate in, some at an extremely young age. We live in a world of rapid change, and the speed of change increases with every passing year. Our children live in a world of rapid change. Everything is changing around them constantly, but just because the interests of our children's change doesn't mean that their gender has to change. Just because the things around our children change doesn't mean that their gender has to change. If you're a little girl who does not wanna wear a dress because you like jeans and you love sports or whatever else you might see, say that kind of is in conflict, conflict with normal gender stereotypes, that doesn't mean you're transgender or non-binary. It means you decided not to fit into the, the typical stereotype of a girl. Doesn't mean you need puberty blockers or a sex change. It just means you're not interested in traditional female stereotypes. And where this becomes a huge concern, friends, is when parents whose children show signs of being interested in things associated with the opposite sex make life-altering decisions to change their child's gender, oftentimes reflecting a serious misunderstanding between sex and sexual identity. Just because your child is interested in things that are the opposite of culturally constructed, uh, culturally constructed sexual stereotypes does not mean they are transgender and non-binary. Gender stereotypes are culturally constructed. They are not biblically mandated. Your little girl or little boy doesn't have to be just exactly like every other little girl or every other little boy. And listen to me close. Because I'm putting myself on the line here. I am not trying to oversimplify this. I'm not. Not in any way, shape, or form. I'm just trying to think logically and believe in objective truth. That's what we need to do so much of the time. We need to think logically and believe in objective truth. And honestly, I can't believe I live in a day when I felt the need to say that out loud when it comes to gender identity, that you need to think logically and believe in objective truth. Gender complementarity, or in other words, the reality of two sexes, male and female, is explicitly taught in the scriptures. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And it is clearly evident from science. Even someone who doesn't believe in God is hard pressed to deny the obvious anatomical complements of men and women, male and female. The male and female sex organs were created to fit together and to function together. Every single aspect of their anatomy and physiology make that clear. And on top of that, the strongest evidence we have in the world that humans were made for heterosexual sex is that it is the means of of procreation. That's God's chosen design for how we populate the world and I'm just going to be blunt the sex organ is the only part of the body that requires another human being of the opposite sex to fulfill its ultimate function biology and gender go together and when it comes to the issue of what makes sense with regard to whether or not someone is male or female science is clear It comes down to reproduction, external anatomy, and the presence or absence of a Y chromosome. And science would say that the doctor did not assign your sex when you were born, he identified your sex when you were born. Here's question number two. You know I don't look at your faces when I preach usually and I'm trying real hard not to look at your faces this morning. What does the Bible say about being male and female? In other words, does the Bible match up to what we see science say about being a man or a woman? Some people will say, and I've I've read this, and maybe you have, maybe you've heard this, and they've said this about different issues. They'll say something like this. Well, Jesus didn't talk about uh, the transgender issue, so it must not be a big deal. But you know, The reason Jesus didn't talk about the transgender issue was because Jesus was Jewish and he ministered to a predominantly Jewish audience where the issue was settled. It wasn't controversial. It wasn't something that was up for debate. So let me tell you what Jesus would have known related to this issue. He would have known these words on the screen from Genesis chapter one and verse 27. Will you read those words with me? Let me hear your voices. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now I want you to notice the word image. Let's focus in on the word image there for a moment. In the original language of the Hebrew, that's the Hebrew word selim. And the word selim has the practical definition or meaning of idol here's a good definition of an idol an idol is a physical representation of an invisible god a physical representation of an invisible god so we understand that god created men and women together everyone say together together to be the physical image of god to be the physical image or the physical representation of himself in the world Now, you fast forward in the Old Testament from Genesis chapter one, and you see that over the course of time in the world, there were a lot of other gods, little G gods, false gods who were all represented by images. But the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for him, his physical representation or the physical representation of himself in the world is men and women. Think about what that means on a practical level. It means that men on their own don't encompass the image of God. It means that women on their own don't encompass the image of God. But together, men and women bear the image of God as male and female. One of the things our culture wants us to believe is that gender is nothing more than a human or a social or a cultural construction. But that's not what God said, and that's not what Jesus affirmed. In fact, we'll go back to Genesis 127 for just a moment. We read it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you continue on, you see that the very next verse, Genesis 128, says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. What do we see here? Well, I think you can make the case that we see compatibility between the written text of the Bible and science. Because you notice the progression here. <clears throat> God created man and woman in his image. Man and women with different reproduction, different external anatomy, and the presence or absence of a Y chromosome. Then they became the physical representation of God on earth, and God tells them, be fruitful and increase in number. Because they were f- created to be physically different and to be complementarity or complement- complementary with each other. And then several years later, Jesus, when he was in the world, answering a question one day from the Pharisees about divorce and marriage, says in Matthew nineteen 4, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator, God, made them male and female? And friends, if gender were something that was not fixed and absolute at creation, this would have been the perfect time for Jesus to speak up and say that. But here's something very important to understand. He didn't do that. And he didn't do that because there wasn't anything that needed to be changed. God created men and women because that was his will. And so, and I would say listen to me really close because this is probably the most important thing that I can say from a practical standpoint about this issue. The focus of the Bible when it comes to you and me the focus when it comes of the Bible when it comes to men and women, the focus of the Bible when it comes to a gender binary or, or a non-binary or transgender or whatever you wanna say, the focus of the Bible is not on our desire, it's on our behavior. And that's what we need to hang on to. God created male and female with instructions related to their behavior. And there's a difference between desiring something and acting on that desire. You can have a desire for something, but that desire in and of itself is not a sin. It may be a temptation, but temptation in and of itself is not a sin. Jesus was tempted, but Jesus was without sin. Temptation becomes a sin when it's acted on. There's a difference between desiring something and acting on that desire. And this is true for every Christian, at least on some level. Because I would be lying if I stood up here today and told you that I never in my life, not once, in all of my 64, almost 65 years of living, had a desire to do something that I knew was in contradiction to the teaching of the Bible. It would be a lie for me to say that. And it would be a lie for you to say that too, wouldn't it? That you never had anything in your life, never had a desire in your life to do something that was in contradiction of the clear-cut teaching of the scriptures. You'd be lying if you said that was the truth. That desire in and of itself is not a sin. It only becomes a sin when we act on it. And somebody might have the desire to change their gender or at least be gender fluid because they think that will take away their confusion or their sadness or their depression or that it somehow will affirm other people or give them more freedom or whatever. But in the end, friends, you will just be more confused. Not all desires and feelings are meant to be acted on. And my hope and my prayer from my heart is that anyone listening to me right now, especially any, any young people, any children listening to me like right now, would just know, you would just know how deeply loved by God you are just the way you are. I want you to know and believe these words that David wrote in Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And listen to me close. Those, All of those things are true about you, even if you have a hard time believing them, because you somehow feel like you don't fit or you're broken somehow. Ever since sin entered the world back in Genesis chapter 3, we are all broken, at least on some level. It might not be in this area of gender identity, but we are all broken. We all suffer the reality of brokenness in our lives on some level. We don't have time to talk about this in detail, but in Romans chapter 8, Paul acknowledges the reality of suffering in the world, all kinds of suffering in the world. That is the result of the fall when sin entered the world back in Genesis chapter 3, and in Genesis, or excuse me, in Romans chapter eight and verse 20, the very first part of the verse, he, he describes it like this, according to the contemporary English Version Bible. He said, "Meanwhile, creation is confused." I like the way the contemporary English Bible put it related to what we're talking about. In my NIV Bible, it says the same thing. It just says that, confu- that creation is subject to frustration." The contemporary English Bible says, Creation is confused, and we have so much confusion in our world today about so many issues of right and wrong and morality and good and bad and righteousness and unrighteousness and on and on and on. And this is a part of living in a fallen, broken world. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, Paul goes on to say this, we know that all creation is still groaning and is in pain like a woman about to give birth might sound like an odd description of the reality of the world infected by sin, but his intention is to say that just like the labor of childbirth doesn't last forever, the suffering and the frustration and the confusion we experience in this broken fallen world today will not last forever. And in Romans eight twenty three, the latter part of the verse he says, But now we groan silently while we wait for God to show that we are his children. That means our bodies will also be set free. It will not be this way forever. Will God set this world free and our bodies free in your lifetime and mine? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? That's God's prerogative. But the world we live in today is not the world God created because it's been broken by sin. And one of the best things you can teach your children, especially when they're young, is that that sin affects us in all different parts of life and living. And it creates frustration and suffering It creates confusion and on and on and on. But until God makes things new, let me just say again, do you know how deeply loved you are by God? I'm going to put some verses all from the book of Psalms up on the screen, and I want all of you to read them with me. I want us to say these out loud, and if you're struggling to believe and understand how much God loves you today, then please say these verses out loud with me. Psalm 36, 7, let me hear your voices. Nothing is more precious than your loving kindness. All people can find protection close to you. Psalm 63, 3, your love means more than life to me, and I praise you. Psalm 86, 15, My Lord, you are a kind and merciful God. You are patient, loyal, and full of love. Psalm 136, 26, Praise the God of heaven, his faithful love will last forever. Forever. Here's a third question What does a parent do if their child says, I think I'm transgender or non binary? Well, first and foremost, you love them. You love them. In fact, you love them like you've never loved them before. You don't abandon them. You get as close to them as possible. You may not agree with what they're saying. You may not agree with everything in their life, but your children should never doubt your love or your loyalty to them as a parent. But we absolutely have to understand This is Parenting 101. We absolutely have to understand that there is a difference between love and affirmation. They are related, but they are not the same. And someone might want to come along and say, well, if you love me, you would affirm everything that I feel. If you love me, you would affirm everything I believe. If you love me, you would affirm every behavior in my life. But I hope and pray that every parent listening to me right now would understand that in your role as the steward of your children's life, that is a false definition of love. I'm going to put a link up on the screen for transgender resources provided by Focus on the Family, and maybe you might want to just take your camera out and snap a picture of it, or your phone camera out and snap a picture of it, or you just go and line and Google Focus on the Family with just the tag transgender resources, you can find this. I'm going to be honest and tell you that when I was writing this message I was very hesitant to use any statistical resources or research because statistics can often be so biased. If you look long and hard enough, you can find statistics to verify what you want to believe. But one of the talking points often used in favor of allowing someone to transition to a transgender male or female is the higher rates of suicide among trans people, which is something that's so very real and serious. But in his book Embodied, Preston Sprinkle writes, long-term follow-up studies have shown that completed suicide rates are still much higher for trans people who transition than among the general population. So be careful what you believe in regards to motivation. If you're a parent of a young child today, or young children, I want to say a couple things to you. As your pastor, as someone who has a responsibility to shepherd your soul, first I want to acknowledge what a challenging time it is to raise children in the world. What a challenging time this is in our culture. And I want to encourage you mom and dad to stand strong in your faith and let your faith and your love of God and your commitment to Christ shape your parenting. Don't waver from that commitment. And the second thing I want to say to you is I just want to remind you that being a parent means that you have to make difficult decisions that your children may not like in the moment, but they will will thank you for later. I read that the National Institute of Mental Health says that our children's brains don't finish developing or maturing until their mid to late 20s. The National Institute of Mental Health. If that's the case, then why do we wrestle with some of the decisions we wrestle with today related to our kids? Why would we let our children make such a life-altering decision like trans? Transitioning to the opposite gender when their brain isn't fully developed. That's not a criticism. It probably took me until I was in my mid 30s for my brain to mature. I've read several stories over the past few months about people who transitioned to the opposite sex and then realized it was a mistake and went through the process of transitioning back. But I'm just going to share one with you briefly. It's a story of a young woman named Kira Bell who lives in the UK, she doesn't live here in the United States, she started transitioning from a female to a male when she was 14. She was a classic tomboy. Transitioning to a, uh, from a female to a male was not something she ever thought of, but then at one point, both of her parents, her parents were divorced, and in two separate occasions, both of her parents asked her one day if she would be more comfortable being a boy. They ended up taking her to a clinic that encouraged her transition. She went on puberty blockers and had her breasts removed. But this is what she says in hindsight. These are her words. But the further my transition went, the more I realized that I wasn't a man and never would be. We are told these days that when someone presents with gender dysphoria, this reflects a person's real or true self and that the desire to change gender is set. But this was not the case for me. As I matured, I recognized that gender dysphoria was a symptom of my overall misery, not its cause. And so when she was 20 years old, she filed a lawsuit against the clinic that helped her transition. They went to court and she won. And the reason why I chose her story to tell you is because when she was on the witness stand, this is what she said. She said, where were the adults Where were the adults to tell me this wasn't the right time to make this kind of decision? And part of being a parent is walking with our children through difficult times instead of just letting them have whatever it is they think they want or need in the moment. Well, I'm sure you might be thinking, well, what about this or what about that or, or here's my experience, but let me just tell you, I can't cover everything and I'm already over time and I'm just going just go a little bit longer. I hope I've covered enough to help you begin to think through this issue of transgender, gender identity related to your children. And I want to encourage all of our parents here who still have children at home. And I don't care if they're brand new babies or they're teenagers. I wanna encourage every parent here who still has children at home to talk to their children about this issue. And I'll do that by saying this. I have two children. If my children were still at home with Sandy and me, this is what I would tell them. I would tell them that people in the world today see reality in different ways, but we're Christians, and as Christians, we base our view of reality on what the Bible teaches about the world because the Bible was written by the God who created the world, and he knows best. The second thing I would tell them, and I would do this in an age-appropriate way, is that God made men and women to be equally valuable, but he also made them to be different. And he did that on purpose. And I would tell them that the difference is wonderful and it's good for so many reasons, including the fact that it's our difference, it's our physical difference that leads to reproduction and one of the greatest blessings of life. The third thing I would tell them is, I would tell them that while God made this world... Not just to be good, but to be very good. It's been messed up and it's been damaged by sin. And sin causes brokenness in the world in everyone's life. Everyone. In different ways. Are some more severe than others? Absolutely they are. But it does damage and causes brokenness in everyone's life. At least on some level number four, I would tell them that not everyone shares a biblical view of the world, and there are people who reject God and reject his word. And number five, I would tell them that some people feel they were born a different gender than their sex, and it makes them feel uncomfortable in their body. And while we don't understand it, and while we treat them with love and compassion like we treat everyone else, we understand that God created them To be who they are. And finally, I would simply tell them, I don't know if they asked me a question that I couldn't answer. But I would say, let's try to find the answer together. And I think those are the things you need to talk about with your children, regardless of whether they are toddlers or teenagers. Those are things they need to understand. We all, as a church, need to be committed to loving people, even people who are different, especially people who are different. In fact, one of the best things that any of us, any one of us here today, any one of us listening today who calls ourselves Christians, one of the best things that we could ever do is make the decision and commitment to love somebody who is different than we are to quit putting up walls and start building bridges, remembering that you can love someone without approving or affirming everything that they do. In fact, that's what love requires. And if you're a parent, you should know that. So let's be people who love, really love, even when It requires taking a difficult stand.